One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. My guest today is someone I've been looking forward to interviewing for quite some time. Rory Sutherland is the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy One and several time TED speaker and all-round advertising legend. Rory's insights for change in behaviour have not only captivated audiences but also affected real-world change. Most polarising of these perspectives is Rory's contrarian approach when it comes to creating value, which proposes that economic incentives are often counterintuitive when it comes to changing behaviour. To shed more light on this, as well as other guiding principles, Rory, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, it's, as I say in the uh, intro, it's been an absolute long time coming, this interview, but also you've, uh, to some degree, been a massive hero of mine, so it's an uh, absolute pleasure to have you on. I think the thing you referenced at the beginning was yep. a sort of mischievous suggestion of mine, which, uh, to give them their due, even The Guardian acknowledged may have some scintilla of truth about it. Right which was the, the creation of intangible value by marketing or by psychological means yep. is arguably good for the environment. Because if you create things that people are willing to pay for that are intangible, all that's necessary in their creation is some bits and some bites rather than the consumption of, say, scarce metals or, um, in the case of diamonds, you know, a, a massive amount of human suffering. Yeah. So the element of something which um, is intangible value is something arguably we should celebrate. Yet we seem to be obsessed with the idea that there's some sort of objective value to things. Could, could you if, give us an example? Um, I think you can... I went to a meeting at the Gloucestershire wing of Soho House and it occurred to me that what you'd got was butlins for the upper middle class (laughs) media. Yeah. Exactly. Now, ostensibly, I'm being very unkind to it because the service was fantastic, they got a wonderful bar, etc. But essentially... What makes that a £300 a night place rather than the £50 a night place is as much the product of branding, association, design as it is any real objective reality. Now, by which I mean, I occasionally, I once got into a huge role for describing San Pellegrino, those cans of San Pellegrino as <laughs> upper middle class Fanta. Yeah. And it was treated as that was as though that were a criticism, whereas quite the contrary, it was actually high praise. What you've done is you've created a very pleasant-tasting orange drink, which, because of some strange um, uh, psychological tricks, including a foil lid on the top, uh, and, let's be honest, brand heritage and fantastic product design, is something you could serve at your own wedding. 
Yeah. Okay, you know, if you if you had a wedding, a, you know, a fancy wedding, and you had a whole load of drinks lined up, and there was a champagne bucket over here, and there were ten cans of of uh, blood orange or sanguinello or whatever it might be by San Pellegrino sitting on the corner, there would be nothing incongruous about that. It'd be pretty weird having a a, a two liter bottle of Fanta <laughs> in that, a kind of that little foil in a pet lid. container. But the little foil lid changes everything so, you know it and actually of course i think you know makes a huge difference to what people would be prepared to pay it's also interesting because i always think of the file lid that it's the thing that the accountants probably trying to kill off you know there's somebody within the organization who's going geez you know our unit costs could be reduced by 0.5 but to some extent it's the lid that creates a large part of the value i i remember a really depressing time i once spent with one of Britain's greatest uh, uh, grocery retailers. And I was horrified to discover the unbelievable stinginess uh, which is forced upon the package design people. Now, this is this is where I get into even more controversial territory. I'd actually say that the quality of the packaging of a food product affects the taste. Of course. Um, pa- partly because it affects your expectation. In the same way that someone who's told they're drinking Chateau Margot, I think largely the wine industry is bullshit, by the way, but we can come on to that later. <laughs> someone who's told they're drinking a Firth Growth Clarity is going to pay more attention to it and look for more nuances than someone who's just told, you know, I got this round the corner, okay? But also, I genuinely think that the knowledge of uh, of what something is affects the way we experience it to, in some cases, a really extreme degree. And the fact that this poor person who is doing a pretty heroic job designing, in some cases, magnificently good packaging for the retailer's own brand food was kind of shouted at if they they were thinking, this was a product that may may have cost four or five pounds to buy. And they were kind of shouted at if they went half a penny over budget or, you know, people were going, you can't possibly use any gold leaf because, you know, it'll reduce our margin by X. That struck me as an extraordinarily barbaric approach to value creation. Now, okay, I'm talking about food. I'm talking (laughs) about supermarket food. But the same thing applies, I think, um, it's kind of, you know, it's almost fractal. You can go up to philosophical questions of architecture. You know, should architecture be functional or should there be a certain amount of budget for things that just convey meaning? Uh, I'd take it even further and say, should the NHS have a budget for doing things which, actually, they probably would, Im- um, uh, what you might call placebo activities, So things that, in other words, the purpose of the expenditure is not a machine that goes bing. It's not a, you know, it's not a drugs cabinet. It's the exploitation of design or other cues which convince the patient or reassure the patient that they're being well looked after. And someone, I was giving this talk and someone came up to me and they said for the first time in their life they'd actually had um, surgery at a private hospital. And they said they came away thinking it was brilliant and that the private experience was so much better. And I said, so what made the difference? You know, you've got your private room. No, I had that in the NHS. No, no. The thing I really noticed when I had a private operation, obviously I didn't notice anything about the operation. I was unconscious at the time. The thing I noticed is when they brought me a glass of water after the operation, they put a doily underneath it. Okay. <laughs> now, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to know that the NHS doily budget is zero. And, you know, a bunch of what you might call, you know, utilitarian rationalists would go, well, so it should be. But actually, the point of a hospital is not just to get people better. It's actually to reassure them they're going to get better. And, of course, the one affects the other. 
and our reluctance to spend on what you might call the creation of intangible but valuable emotional effects um, seems to me to be a flaw of the modern age, that we, you know, our obsession with the idea that we can justify everything makes things worse. And I've just started using recently the newly revamped London Bridge Station, I don't know if you've been there. But it's basically cost a billion quid. And they've produced something which, to give them their due, okay, uh, there was always a bottleneck there. The throughput of trains, the efficient movement of people, all those things will be improved. But they've somehow managed to spend a billion pounds on a building which is both impressive and completely unlovable. You know, there's nothing likable about it at all. Now, you know, if you put me in charge <laughs> of the thing, I'd just say, look, oh, look, it's a billion pounds, OK? We only need 1% of a billion pounds, and we've actually got 10 million quid, OK? Yeah. With 10 million quid, you would, for example, you would say, let's make sure there are three or four really eccentric retailers, like the speciality cheese place at Marlborn Station, yeah. OK? Um, let's actually have some really nice, insanely pleasant furniture, I mean, you can buy a hell of a lot of nice furniture for 10 million quid. You know, uh, let's actually, you know, have, uh, you know, slightly, you know, a more proper provision of lavatories would be a start as well. But let's just do something with this station that people weren't expecting. Can I, can I interrupt you for a sec? Of course, yeah. So on, on that, two questions I have for you. So uh, firstly, your perspective on... Because you're very aware of these things around that are going on, for example, the uh, Chateau Petrus example that you gave. Yes. How does that affect your experience, number one? And the second question, which I'll tie into it, is as an advertising person who you're a head of Ogilvy to some degree or a department of it, did it drive you crazy having to produce just normal ads for so many years? or And, and how do you justify your oh, no, positioning no. now? Uh, very interesting. Um, my view of what we're doing in Ogilvy Change, which is a part of Ogilvy uh, and a part focused on behavioural science, behavioural science in a very wide um, and blurry definition, I might add. I mean, uh, you know, the study of changing human behaviour involves everything from evolutionary psychology, behavioural economics, uh, complexity theory, by the way, quite a bit, network theory, right. simply because the way we're a very, very social species and the way new behaviours spread, uh, it isn't simultaneous, it's by gradual diffusion. Yeah. And so you have to understand quite, you know, you have to understand a bit about a lot to right. do this. But the reason I see it as entirely complementary to what the rest of the agency does, the way I occasionally refer to it is as the missing discipline. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are certain disciplines which are well established in advertising and marketing. There's a creative discipline, quite rightly and necessarily. There's a media and targeting discipline. There is now a data discipline, increasingly, in, in better understanding markets at a disaggregated level. All good things. Yeah. And all of those things are important, and they will never cease to be important, but there's also what I call a kind of missing link. There's a kind of thing for which we have no name. And I discovered this very early because my I came into Ogilvy in what was then called Ogilvy and May the Direct, working for some really, truly remarkable people. It was only about 140 people. It was the direct marketing arm of Ogilvy. Of Ogilvy. But there were 20 or 30 people you came across, Drayton Bird being one of them, the great direct marketing guru, was the chairman when I joined and kind of executive creative director. 
there are a whole bunch of people like I'm Steve Harrison, for example. I'm the art director I work with, Mike Sim, who's now a vicar, for instance. And it was a fascinating connection of people, but it also had the great advantage of direct marketing, which is you actually had direct results. You mailed people and you measured how many people responded. And two things very quickly became apparent. One, that very, very small things could have huge effects. That's the first thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, changing a word or um, uh, you know, adding a sentence in complete, you know, uh, defiance of conventional economic theory. These things should have been irrelevant, but they were transformative. Secondly, some things were counterintuitive. So there was a product I worked on very, very early, which I won't go into detail because uh, there's too much, but where they tried loads and loads of letters and the weird thing was the way to sell that product I eventually discovered was to talk much less about it. Right. <laughs> now, I've subsequently worked out why that was. The product wasn't that big a deal. It was simply a thing where you could choose to opt in to an American Express service so that whenever you booked an air ticket, they charged you an extra £3, but you got an extra few hundred thousand pounds worth of travel accident insurance. Okay. And that's the kind of purchase decision which is... Yeah, I get it. Yeah, you know, seems all right. No, I don't think I'll bother. It's, it's, it's that kind of decision. If you wrote a two-page letter about that, you actually created more suspicion, doubt, and uncertainty than if you just said, there's an option to choose this. If you want it, tick here. Well, that, that's it. That's the train line approach, right? A tick well, box. Tick box. Now, the interesting thing there, I subsequently, I also did the same thing when selling, uh, it was a very important thing, when selling high-speed fiber optic broadband. You know, I said, actually, the first thing you've got to test here is a plain letter in a plain envelope uh, with four paragraphs of copy. And they said, well, how can that be more effective than a brochure and a blah, blah, blah? And I said, very simple. You're getting basically 10 times more bandwidth for 20% more money. To the lizard brain, and I would argue to the conscious intellectual brain, to both of them, this is a bit of a no-brainer. It's a few quid more a month. I get 10 times the bandwidth. Yeah. Okay. Making that seem like a, would you like this thing because it's now available in your area, was something like four times, five times more effective than trying to sell it. Right. Now, the interesting thing there was, uh, and I'd suspected that all along. Now, if you think about it, there's a kind of, well, Shakespeare said it with, me thinks he doth protest too much, I think. <laughs> which is, if some, if a friend of yours bought you a pint and said, oh, I just bought you a pint, right? You go, oh, that's very nice, thanks for the pint. If you had a friend come over and go, I've bought you a pint, it's for you, I chose it specially, it's a new lager they're serving, and you kept going, look at the pint I've bought you, then people would kind of go, what the hell's the, what's going on here? He's probably pissed in it or something. You know, some, <laughs> you know you'd actually start to become suspicious yeah. by the very solicitude with which they, uh, you know... It needs uh, to be a little bit more nonchalant. In and order. so, you know, when, when, you, when you've actually got a great product, sell it in a kind of nonchalant way. And then other things I discovered very early on, we had a fantastic case where, this is how bloody old I am, um, you were selling products for the phone company, where, which were then called Star Services, where exchanges had recently been digitized, and you could press star 21, star, number, hash, and divert your calls. I mean, you know, most mobile phones do all that stuff now. This was actually quite novel, call waiting, call diversion, three-way calling, I think. And at the time, I mean, these were actually quite novel things, and they charged about couple of quid a month for them, I think. And the interesting thing there was we had a bizarre client. We sent out letters inviting people to sign up, and we had a complete... The letters in 
complete accordance with logical uh, direct marketing behavior, offered you as many means of responding as was possible, because that was always the rule. I mean, uh, you know, broadly speaking, it's very boring, it's very banal, but if you have a catalog, put the phone number on every page of the catalog, you'll right. get more orders. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, that, it's that banal. Yeah. And then there's very eccentric, weird clung. I, I don't want to offer a postal response. I just want the phone number because we're a phone company and why are we giving incremental business to the post office and we're trying to inculcate a kind of phone culture here. Mm, a bit weird. You know, I mean, Jesus, it's a stamp. You're selling a product for several pounds a month. Yeah. You know, what's your beef? But then we said, okay, well, before we do this, we'll just test it. And in those days, you know, weirdly, you'd think the digital age has increased the propensity of this kind of testing. I'm not sure it has, actually. And so we took 50,000 people, selected at random from the database. 50,000 got phone only. 50,000 got post only. And 50,000 got phone and post to see what would happen. Now, the results were really, really weird. I, I wish I had them still, but I can remember them to within, you know, a fraction, a, you know, small fractions. And it was something like phone only 2.1%, post only 6.9%. I think I'm getting this right. Uh, phone plus post was something like 8.9%. So when you offered both means of response, the response rate was almost, not quite, the sum total of the other two responses. Now, there are two possibilities, one of which is simply that offering people a choice vastly increases their propensity to respond. Okay. The other possibility is that, weirdly, and in contrary to all economic theory, whether you buy the product or not depends less on what it costs and how useful it is to you, and much more on how you can order it. Now, actually, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe they're both true. In both cases, any economist would say that the, you know, they would accept that there are things called transaction costs and that the response rate might vary by 0.1 of a percent or even 0.2. But the idea that it has such a spectacular effect on whether people are willing to reply or not um, is completely defies conventional logic. And so discovering things like that all the time. What I was just saying is that, you know, we had media people, we had creative people. And I always said, look, there's a whole load of other shit in this area, our ignorance of which can be dangerous, because we could have casually just goes, yeah, that seems logical, let's make it phone only. Okay. There's a whole load of other stuff in this area, which is like the dark side of the marketing moon. Well, I was just about to say, sorry to interject, no. that... For me, that that the the dark the dark art or the missing piece or however <clears> you want to uh, announce it is what has been embraced by the technology industry and w what I believe to some degree has has helped that to boom uh, and surpass many others. So I mean, it's interesting <clears> actually. It's sometimes embraced, and I think we can genuinely say of Apple, for example, yeah. uh, that uh, the focus on design, usability, and user experience in Apple's case. And the focus on psychology has been absolutely deliberate and planned. Sometimes, and more spookily, okay, um, it's not actually intended, it's discovered. So, for example, you know, there is a danger. When Facebook decided it wanted to increase stickiness and dwell time, it simply upweighted the kind of content which caused people to stick around and then discovered to its horror that the thing that caused people to stick around was effectively Daily Mail-style outrage yep. or shock. Of course, yeah. Or, you know, or disgust, yep. even, okay? 
highly emotive. And, and so therefore, suddenly you ended up being, um, uh, you know, Paul Dacre at global scale, effectively. Right. And, you know, their own algorithms, perfectly logically, said, what do we want? We want content that people stick around for. Uh, neglecting to notice the fact that that's content that also makes people deeply miserable, angry, and causes them to fall out with their Brexity stroke Ramona friends. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. Sometimes the tech industry does it very well. Sometimes, of course, uh, there's a kind of evolutionary thing. And there's a book... I, I, can I just uh, explain, uh, I guess, my thinking on that point a little bit? Because I've been in the advertising industry for, for how many, six, seven years now, uh, but I've also touched uh, my foot in the tech industry for a little bit. And I was very aware that within the creative industry, there's an inverse incentive to create creative work that would, say, win awards, would help your propensity to move up the career ladder, but not necessarily to drive results, whereas it always felt in tech firms where you had equity that your your whole incentive was about how to better attain whatever metrics you were trying to achieve be that sales or growth i mean the awards question is an interesting one which yeah. is um in some ways it's very good because it prevents the industry becoming cynical it also um creates an incentive to both experiment and to push the boundaries of advertising, which you have to do to prevent it becoming stale. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is the danger that if you... There is the huge danger of what you might call an awards culture feedback loop, where regardless of what the public think of advertising, there's this extraordinary kind of feedback loop where people are encouraged to do ads which... Uh, and I think that I think there's. I mean, for example, I'll give you. I'll give you an example of this. I might blame the awards culture, particularly the fact that we we are now mostly in a world of global awards competitions, can being predominant. Okay, one thing it's killed is really good copywriting, because you have a global jury, some of whom for whom you know English isn't the first language or even much of a language at all. Uh, a hell of a lot of the nuance of. Um, uh, talking to someone in a native language is lost in translation. And uh, the fact that the nature of international awards has distorted the kind of advertising that's produced or which young creatives aspire to produce uh, is, I think, it's one of those things that's actually, it starts off as a minor problem and perhaps over time it gets worse and worse. There's also a kind of homogeneity to awards now. You know, I mean... There's something that always slightly irked me as a copywriter, which is that um, it's okay as an art director to, you know, if you if as a copywriter you you put in Jane Austen references in your copy, you'd immediately get shot down as being far too Radio Four, and you know, just, yep. just <laughs> people don't read Jane. Well, not really true. Okay, but you get shot down for being a literary twat. Yeah. Okay? If you produce something for an art school educated creative jury, which assumes an insane amount of visual literacy. Okay, I mean, you know, uh, that's okay. And so there are occasions where I have to admit, I will go around some of the categories in Cannes. I didn't go to art school myself. And about one in 10 ads, I cannot understand for the life of me. I don't even know what's going on. And that's because, you know, um, 
uh, in a sense, copy is forced down to a lowest common denominator position where you just have just do it or something like that. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I'm just saying, you know, it's forced down to that clunkiest possible role, if at all. Whereas the level of kind of uh, visual appreciation you're allowed to assume in an audience is spectacularly high. And I think that has unbalanced advertising. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, fr- I'm a fan of rhyme. I'd like to bring back jingles. I'd like to bring back long copy. Yeah, Not necessarily, by the way, the argument against long copy was, by the way, bogus because it was always that people don't read it. Well, one, people who are thinking of buying the product do read it and they're the most important audience. Secondly, even if you don't read it, long copy is a visual which says you have quite a lot to say. Thirdly, you can also convey, I think, in long copy, personality, what you might call brand character, in a way that's harder to do purely visually. So I, I, as a copywriter, I do feel hard done by by what you might call that. Uh, I mean, I've tried. Emma de la Fosse, my colleague, has also tried. We've produced long copy ads for clients. And, you know, in, in defense of the awards jury problem, the clients won't run them, and that's because they don't look like the ads done by their competitors. So you've almost reached this weird point where, and remember this, this is one of the great lessons of behavioral science, okay? It's much safer for your career to fail conventionally than to fail unconventionally, okay? If you fail conventionally, essentially people regard you as unlucky. If you fail eccentrically, people regard you as an idiot and you lose your job, okay? So there's an enormous insurance policy in essentially what you might call blame avoidance, And so the safest form of blame avoidance is essentially derivative copying. Yeah. Um, I I always argue that's why there are only four big accounting firms, okay? It's why if you ask for a flight to New York from a travel agent or from a PA, you always get Heathrow to JFK. Because, you see, Heathrow to JFK is the default. It's the boring thing you're expected to do. Ergo, if you put your boss, if you're a PA and you put your boss on the Heathrow JFK flight, if anything goes wrong, he'll blame British Airways. Yeah. Because you haven't really done anything. You've just gone along with the flow. Okay. Despite the fact that Ogilvy is much closer to Newark, the fact that Ogilvy in London is much closer to London City, and we're on the same railway line as Gatwick, never mind all that stuff, it'll be Heathrow fucking JFK. I live in Kent, too, okay? (laughs) Right? And... um, By contrast, you see, you book the guy at a London city airport. It may be 10% better 99% of the time, but if anything goes wrong, he might not blame British Airways, he'll blame you. Because you can't ring your PA from Heathrow and go, what the hell were you doing, thinking, mad idea, booking me on from the flight to the world's busiest international airport. Are you mad? Whereas you can, if you're at London City, you can go, if you hadn't booked me from this toy town airport, I'd be in bloody New York by now. So the extent to which, this is true of all human behavior, when we talk about our behavior and when we consciously think about our behavior, we think we're trying to optimize. Okay? Um... When we actually make emotionally driven decisions, the stronger emotional force is not actually the pursuit of the perfect or the optimal. It's the avoidance of the catastrophic. And so in personal behavior, that means effectively um, uh, what you might call regret avoidance. And in corporate behavior, it's blame avoidance. And those are the two really, really potent forces that that drive behavior very heavily. So assuming that you're consciously aware of that that you're that you're trying to avoid catastrophe uh, to your point you were saying there about career advice it, yeah. it, is it to put yourself i'll go back a step so talking about how 
um, the best thing to do is to copy, or not the best thing to do, the, what most people do. Going back to the advertising question of creatives when they come into the industry, I always think a better book, per se, that what you would be looking for as a creative director would be a series of business ideas or problems that are being solved that, or behaviour change initiatives as opposed to ads? Um, well, okay. The role and the value of advertising, mm. particularly in some product categories, yeah. okay, isn't going to go away. I would also argue the role of expensive bought media advertising on television. Television is not diminishing in effect or potency at all. Right. Um, uh, I would also argue that the next 10 years will prove very good for television. Uh, I mean, Press is going to have a tough time, okay? Uh, simp- and and part, a large part of that, by the way, is if you, you'll remember this working in advertising, there's always a kind of unspoken media hierarchy. And it used to be kind of TV, press, posters. And then you had other things, including cinema, which was usually a TV derivative. And then you had the, what you might call, in a less less politically correct age, (laughs) I'd say the red-headed stepchild media, which would be radio, commercial radio, particularly in the UK, where, of course, the existence of the BBC means that none of your clients listen to commercial radio. Incredibly (laughs) effective medium, by the way. You can do gloriously creative things. Everything about it is wonderful. But the fact that it's number five basically means that you kind of drop out of contention. And something to think what digital did is, one, it had audience sizes of billions or claimed audience sizes, entirely bogus for the most part. I mean, you know, but it, by talking about we have, you know, a billion users, it made, it made a TV audience of 10 million seem irrelevant by contrast. And then it also knocked press out of the number two slot into a kind of number four, three or four slot, really. Okay. Still so get the gravitas of print. And, and uh, yeah, no. I mean, I think. Yeah, no, I, no, I, I mean, interestingly, what you may, and I, I'm obviously self-interested here because I write to, for the to, Spectator. To your thing but about... I don't think it'll be long before weekly publications might have a larger readership than daily papers. Now, there's a potential thing that if you take, I mean, I mean, among when I said press, the daily paper has been depositioned to some extent by 24-hour rolling TV news, the web. And actually, by you know, live radio, there are loads and loads of other ways you can get news now without buying a paper. I do have a suggestion for the newspapers, and I suggested this to our client, and I'm absolutely deadly serious about this. No yeah. one will do it, of course. <laughs> which is the way to um, rework the fortunes of the newspaper is really easy. You teach the country to do cryptic crosswords. Right. Because actually, in cost per entertainment hour, the reason I read the Times every day is because I do the crossword. Now, if you did an ad campaign teaching people to do cryptic crosswords, now I have a little bit of evidence which supports oh, me on this. interesting. Now, okay, if you think about it, okay, do I want to pay one pound, whatever it is, for a paper? I actually subscribe, I'd do it on the tablet, okay? The reason I read that paper more or less digital cover to cover every day is driven by the crossword. And secondly, the crossword also justifies the expense because in cost per entertainment hour, the crossword's much cheaper than anything else. Because a crossword is, you know, one thing, but it basically, if you learn to do cryptic crosswords, A, it's creatively interesting, okay, because it teaches you the art of just continually rethinking things, um, simply because the clues are intended to mislead you see so you have to continually reinterpret the second thing is that basically if you're ever if, if your plane's delayed by half an hour wherever you are in the world you won't be bored you know if you've got a half hour train journey you've got a crossword it's a it's basically a boredom cure 
But so I mean, I actually think that oddly, and no newspaper wants to admit this, that people buy the paper for the crossword and they happen to read the news because the editor is a much more senior person than the crossword editor. Nonetheless, I think this may be true. And I think if you taught more people to do it, because it's, it's actually, I mean, if you think about how enduring the crossword is, as an art form. I mean, it started in, I think, the UK stroke US in the 30s. The cryptic crosswords reached a kind of apotheosis now. It's really, really, um, you know, they think Zimmernian principles or so. I don't go into this. <laughs> but it's actually a really, really interesting thing. Now, no newspaper editor wants to admit this, but my argument is... Now, interestingly, I was slightly backed up on this because the spectator recently put its crossword inside the paywall and noticed a massive subscription spike. Right. So I do feel slightly vindicated in my yeah. theory that if more people did crosswords, more people would read newspapers. So that that's an example of like a kind of behavioural change, like initiative that you could do that would that would cause something. Obviously, you are heading up Ogilvy Change, which for for listeners they may not know that is the behavioural change arm to some degree of Ogilvy, and you have behavioural psychologists as part of Yeah, team. so we employ psychologists, um, uh, we employ sort of social geographers, a whole bunch of people who... Um, I, I, by the way, I don't make... A, your academic background is, is not an essential. I mean, we'll employ anybody who's interested and talented in this area. Yeah. Um, it's... What interests me about it, OK, is this... Now, if you look at the people we've talked to, my great beef about the ad industry, and that's since I suppose we're speaking in the week of Martin Sorrell's departure. Yeah, I, that is a question I had I, for I you. thought you might have done, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's not a bad moment for, for the ad industry to have a, a rethink. Now, what's changed? First of all, a totally disastrous mistake made by the ad industry, which is the separation of media and creative made even worse by the fact that it happened at the very moment in history where where um, close interrelation between media and creative was becoming more and more essential. In the digital space, the idea of doing the two separately is nonsense. Okay. Now, I think that was bad for all sorts of reasons. I think that, uh, you know, more and more creative work will be media, location, or moment-specific. Okay. And the potential of digital is precisely that. It's contextual messaging. So reactive. So keeping... No, okay, TV was always one way. TV was an artificial thing. You could keep... The, the creatives didn't really care. Now, that's going to change, actually, because Sky, of course, allows the pretty much the individual targeting of TV ads. Right. But historically, you know, I mean, let's be honest, a creative who'd produced a fantastic 60-second film didn't care that much whether it went out at 10pm on Grampian or whether it went out at 7pm on Anglia, OK? They weren't, you know, that didn't really affect their career or the efficacy of the ad all that much. It was an ad. And TV, by nature, its nature, um, all other forms of communication require really quite tight um, coordination between those two disciplines. And what was brilliant in the early days... Um, Essentially, as a copywriter back in the 90s, you had media in-house, you had a planner in-house, and you were there with your art director and the account man, don't forget. But generally, what was interesting is if the media guy, if you, if you worked together and you came up with an idea, now, sometimes the creative people were happy with the idea because it was beautifully elegant until the media guy pointed out, yeah, beautifully elegant, wonderfully targeted. It will only reach seven people and our target <laughs> is to sell 200,000 units. Okay. Now, what you found is, first of all, if the planner was happy, the media guy was happy and the creative team were happy, you were onto something. You know, okay, you'd passed that major hurdle. 
Secondly, of course, what you were doing was you were selling the client a solution, which was, we have a solution which works in media terms, in creative terms, in strategic terms. If you press go, this is what we believe is a good thing to do. When you separated those two things, and they were separated, I think, in the interest of making more money out of them separately than you could together. The only problem is, right, is that when you separate things out, you become a weaker negotiator than when you bundle things together. No one buys a Coke and goes, yeah, but what, what's the individual cost of the ingredients? Because I think I'm being ripped off with this Coke because actually if you add it... The co- OK, nobody does that. They just go, <laughs> If you go out for a meal, you don't go, yeah, but it's chicken, I could buy that in M&S for a quid, right? Because the meal is, an in, is a composed experience. When you separate media from creative, you take what is a restaurant experience... And you turn it into a fucking Mongolian barbecue. <laughs> you, you remember that craze for Mongolian barbecues, which is basically you go to a room and you cook your own fucking food, right? <laughs> now, in a Mongolian barbecue, you do ask that question, hold on a second, I'm basically cooking at home, right? But I'm paying restaurant prices for the privilege. Why am I doing this? And I so the separation of, of, of media and creative, uh, and, and you could include data in that now, okay? The separation of those things was dumb, okay? Full stop. Other things that happened, the nature of how we were paid went from payment by commission to payment by fee. What we should have done at that point is we should have said, well, this is great, because although being paid on commission was sometimes fantastic, I mean, you've got an insane bonanza amount of money for not doing all that much, rerunning last year's campaign. Contrary-wise, of course, um, it limited the number of problems you could solve, because unless your client had a problem, the solution to which lay in bought media, there was nothing you could do, because you couldn't get paid. Now, at some point, someone should have said, hold on, if we're paid by the hour, we can actually create something. This is what I'm trying to do with Ogilvy Change. We can create something which can talk to anybody. We don't even always talk to the marketing department. At one very large paper manufacturer, we talk to the um, factory safety people. Their most pressing problem wasn't the sale of of paper-based products. Their most pressing problem was factory safety, and we deployed behavioural science, and you'll eventually see the work, um, to solve the problem of factory... minimise the problem of factory accidents. In another case, we had a food client where the problem was factory hygiene, and we invented a solution which basically multiplied by a large... uh, reduced by a huge factor the number of people not washing their hands by making it highly salient if they hadn't. Okay, without giving too much away. Um, Now, the interesting thing is, someone should have said, now we're paid by the hour. This industry is never maybe going to be as lucrative as it was, but it can be a lot bigger. So the kind of people, okay, my lunchtime meeting was with two people from a large police authority who are looking at behavioural science to uh, reduce the incidence of crime on the one level, or what you'd expect them to do, but also to look at how you create uh, greater diversity and recruitment to the police service. And so we got a whole load of ideas. You probably know my stuff. If you hire people in groups, yeah. diversity comes automatically because we automatically frame a decision differently when we're hiring 10 people versus when we're hiring one. Hire one, you're basically in that risk-averse mode where you're looking for conformity. Hire 10 and you're looking for complementarity. You know, I always said this about, you know, if you t- I said this about conservative MPs. You know, your typical constituency, if it appoints people one at a time, it's going to end up with a bloody Oxbridge PPE graduate 
graduate who's worked in law. You know, whack, yeah. whack, whack. Okay. <laughs> I mean, by the way, it's fine. But having ten of those is fine. Okay. But if you, if you had ten constituencies choosing ten people, you might get three of those people, but you wouldn't get ten. You know, um, generally you're looking at organisations and diversity at the level of group recruitment is pretty good. Diversity at the level of individual recruitment is much worse. So you know, there are loads and loads of problems where you can just look at the natural psychological grain of the human brain and you can say, you know, you're doing something here which you're not conscious of it, but actually I think... I'll give, I'll give you a lovely example of this. If you're selling something online, okay... This is the great old direct marketing practitioners of the 30s, the Capelses and so forth. They were very astute to this stuff. They actually said, when you write a direct response off the page ad, write the coupon first. And of course, all us young people went, damn me daft, you write a really clever headline or whatever it is. They said, no, 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 you write the coupon first because if you haven't got the coupon right, you can write the best ad in the world and nobody will buy anything. And there are really banal things. If you're doing direct response uh, selling, for example, if, for example, you didn't say how quickly the product would be delivered, you might find that half the people don't buy. They reach right to the end, they go, I want one of those. And then there's one thing which they go, is it going to arrive in time for my aunt coming to stay? I can't find out, fuck it. Okay? <laughs> uh, I, I mean, a classic case, by the way, if anybody from Nestle is listening, from Nespresso, they produced two, two types of Nespresso machine in this new spinny capsule variant. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. And there's the basic model and the automatic model, and they're both sold at the same price. Okay? Now... I can't buy either of them because it fucks with my head, yeah. right? <laughs> if you said there's the basic black one, it's 180 quid, and then there's a the pink one, it's 190. I get that. You're paying for to match your bloody kitchen. I don't have a pink kitchen, but I mean, you know, okay. But by having two different models, one of which appears to be an enhancement of the other, but priced the same, I can't buy either of them. And so understanding it's really, really common for companies to do everything right except this little thing... You know, whatever it may be, some tiny details omitted or they've done something which people misunderstand. And my argument is you should always actually start with a coupon. And you should also, you should optimise marketing activity from the decision back. Because if your last mile's not optimised, then there's no point in improving, you know, the first mile. If you've got a bottleneck, uh, at the, you know, this is a bit of a Kentish example, but if you've got a bottleneck at the Blackwall Tunnel, um, there's no point at widening the A2 at Gantz Green, whatever it's called, you know. <laughs> you see what I mean? There's the sun in the sands. That's all, there you go. Here's a, um, like a, a bit of a one to work backwards from, and I think it's, a bit, it's quite a tough question, which is there's so many young people nowadays or people from across all age groups who are quite sceptical around advertising and brands and their messaging and all the kinds of things that were being delivered. I think people are becoming a little bit more savvy about what, what people are trying to sell to us. Um, what do you do... Of course, well, actually, you could phrase that a different way, which is that people are creating kind of hipster um, brands which sail beneath the radar of being brands. Yeah, Um, I mean, mean, really, really left-wing Guardian readers think that when they go on an eco-holiday 
um, including a visit to Machu Picchu, right? Uh, you notice that all eco-holidays seem to involve a long-haul flight. I've always wondered about that, you know, because in order for your eco-credentials to be significant, you've got to fly a really long way to prove how ecological you are. It's all fucked, really. But, you know, those people are actually just as much being sold to and marketed to, but what they enjoy is the delusion that they aren't. Well, so this is a question I was trying to give to you earlier, which is, so you're very self-conscious of all these things that are being given to you and to some degree to your point about the hipster stuff i th- i think when you're conscious of it you try and sell yourself on it if that makes sense like you have no. you have to buy into the the, the foil lid on the thing in order like other if you don't what do you end up uh, it, uh, it's, um, it's quite it's where do you I mean, put I mean, yourself some, some, when you're of it, aware? some of it i think it's worth remembering we can't actually control ourselves yeah. okay so i've been studying i always say this like, i've been studying this stuff for 10 years or something now and yet when i go on an airline website and it says only four seats left at this price part of me goes they're trying to exploit my scarcity bias but the main part of me the, amyg- the amygdala goes fuck i better click now right yeah. and that's never going to go away what you can do i think And this sounds really pessimistic, but I mean, one thing I'm very clear about is I wouldn't do anything that I wouldn't talk about. Okay. And, you know, talk about openly. And the point I'd make there is there is the potential, there is the potential for the dark arts here, and I'm not denying this for a second. Um, But the way I'd phrase this is that Daniel Kahneman, when uh, we invited him to the IPA, one of the interesting things he said is he said, I don't think any of my work will significantly change or eradicate or replace biases that we may hold because they're just too deeply ingrained. They're kind of in the motherboard. Even if you're aware. Even if you're aware. However, he said, maybe I'm optimistic enough to say, he's quite a pessimistic guy. Um, I'm optimistic enough to say it might improve the nature of gossip. By which I mean, is he said, if I add some vocabulary ideas, you know, I mean, virtue signaling is an interesting concept. It's an addition of a piece of vocabulary. Yeah. And this is this is not to be totally cynical, but there is a cast of people who I think are not particularly generous or virtuous, but find it economical to signal their signal altruism by uh, you know adopting you know political positions on something without actually doing anything about it um and uh, so the understanding of concepts like signaling for example uh, the understanding of runaway signaling which now this is a really interesting issue which is what i wouldn't say I think markets are a bit like ecosystems, which is that they're very, very interesting. They generate spectacular diversity and spectacular creativity, okay? But they do occasionally run crazy. I'm I'm not sure that women's fashion hasn't gone bonkers, okay? The amount of money spent on female fashion and beauty products, which runs into the trillions, it's more than the world spends on education. Now... The, the, the little comparison I do there is, I, I go, look, if you can imagine that every women's clothes shop, every beauty shop, every nail bar, every hairdresser's, the, the, every female hairdresser's, if you imagine a parallel world in which they were all actually selling drones and model railways to blokes, okay? So your, your typical Seven Oaks High Street would have five drone shops, and guys would say, actually, we've got John's wedding on Saturday, so I'll need to buy a new drone, 
right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. At some point, I think someone will go, okay, I get the fact that drones are pretty cool, but this is getting a bit crazy. Okay. Now, no one's actually been prepared to actually put the kind of question. I do occasionally challenge yeah. um, particularly feminists on this. Yeah. Because I say, you know, you do have free will. You know, you're not, and I get the fact that there's a huge amount of social pressure. Maybe it isn't, I, I, it isn't the patriarchy, to be honest. Okay. Right. Yeah. I think it's either peer group pressure or it's internal that fashion is a self-administered placebo to make you feel confident or good. I was going to say, it's... A, it's, a, it's not ma- I don't think it's male, but it's very easy to dress in a way that males find attractive. Being simple. I mean, if you think about it, I don't think there's anybody here at the moment watching Pornhub and going, oh my God, that's last year's Dolce & Gabbana. I've detumessed <laughs> completely, right? Okay? Yeah. All right? You know, I don't think, you know, people, you know, in terms of what men find attractive about women, I don't yeah. think really high fashion plays that big a part in it, to be honest. That's true. It's more okay. of an internal thing. And so it seems to be an internal thing. Now, I, you know, I, at some level, I think, it's very interesting that we don't discuss it because the amounts of money spent are spectacular. Yeah. And you might argue it's a form of rivalrous consumption where ultimately it's negative sum. That, yes, you feel better because you've got a great dress or you've got thinner or you've done whatever. The net effect is you feel a bit better and five other people feel a bit worse. Um, you know, I mean, status, argue, people like Lord Laird argue this about things like car status. Now, my only, my only defence of the car industry there is that competitive behaviour with car buying has made cars a lot better. Okay. Yeah. Whereas someone described female fashion as innovation without improvement, that yeah. effectively all you were doing was reinventing. The weirdest shit, by the way, I went into um, uh, House of Fraser in Blue Water, because that's how I roll, and um, <laughs> the summer clothes, right, are now on sale. Now, just, just for the benefit of the listeners here, it's now April, right? Yeah. Now, this is summer clothes... So that means that most women have already bought. I mean, as a bloke, would you ever do that? Would you go? Would you go in in February and go? I really need a summer wardrobe. What the fuck's all that about, right? <laughs> I go. Oh shit! I need a shirt. It's hot. I'll buy a summer shirt. The idea that I'd be fucking thinking about this shit four months in advance. What the hell's going on? So no, understanding the fact that markets that the, the the great mistake that economists make is they value free markets because they think they're efficient. Total bollocks. Markets aren't remotely efficient. There's duplication. There's completely unnecessary competition. The whole thing's a mess. The one thing that markets are is they're really, really creative. They produce things that we didn't even know we wanted, okay? Red Bull, etc. You know, the bonkers products that no one would have asked for. Um, it's one of the great problems of communism. If you've got a control economy, you're reliant on people's reported wants, yeah. Um, and actually, the only way you can discover... Only, I don't even know what I myself want. The only way I can discover it is basically by finding out what I'm prepared to pay for. Yeah. Um, revealed preference as the economic term. And the great thing about markets is they're really, really creative and extraordinarily inventive and adaptive, but they're not efficient. And, and, and also, they're not kind of things that tend towards a sane equilibrium. There are undoubtedly things, and you only have to look at the small, you only have to look back a tiny way in history to realize how occasionally you get a feedback loop which leads to a form of insanity. So the 18th century English obsession with the pineapple just as you had the tulip craze in um, uh, the tulip mania in in, in Holland, um, 
There were people who paid what is effectively 5,000 quid in modern money or 10,000 pounds for a pineapple, and it would sit as a status symbol on the table, basically rotting and decaying, just to prove you owned a pineapple. And that's why, by the way, as a... You you know how, you know, the 18th century bling was you had gateposts with pineapples on top or the house had stone pineapples on it. (laughs) The whole thing is a kind of, you know, um, loads of money indicator. And so, you know, there have been, if you look back at it, I mean, there were, uh, I think in the Middle Ages, pepper, which is now not only commoditized but practically disposable, was this massive... So if you had a wedding banquet, you would have a huge and completely gratuitous pile of pepper just to prove you could afford it, OK? So it's not as if this stuff is new. And you know, my my argument is that the one good thing about capitalism, it may take time, but there are crazy markets like that which someone might disrupt. So my real obsession, one of the other clients I've been talking to, this is what I, I love about doing this job, is, you know... In, in advertising, if you're dealing with people for whom the main solution to their business problem is giving six million quid to Rupert Murdoch or five million quid to Facebook, OK, there are a certain number of fairly limited businesses which where that is true. And the weird muscle memory of advertising agencies, which tend to think, well, if I haven't actually done anything in media... Um, I've kind of cheated, okay? Now, what is fascinating about doing behavioural science things is, first of all, you're not necessarily talking to the marketing department. You're not confined to talking to people who have an advertising budget. This is my curse. The curse about the ad agency, right, is you have this thing and you have a group of talents inside an ad agency which has the potential to be a general hospital for human-facing business problems. And instead, it's got this sign out front that says cosmetic surgery, And people only come to an ad agency if they've got 10 million quid to give to Rupert Murdoch and they imagine, well, if I haven't got 10 million quid, they won't want to talk to me. But, I mean, one of the people we've been talking to recently, or I've just booked a meeting with, is someone who's got a plan to... It's similar to The Collective, if you like. Totally disrupt the idea of what property is, how you own it, how you rent it, how you pay for it. Um, You know, those are the things now... You know, one thing I can guarantee people working for Ogilvy Change is you'll work on a hell of a lot of interesting stuff. You won't go basically... By the way, I'm totally cool about using behavioural science to sell crisps. I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit (laughs) right-wing. I'm totally unapologetic about using creative talents to uh, sell consumer goods and keep people employed and and so forth. Um, But I I wouldn't want to spend 15 years of my life working on crisps. Of course, yeah. And so the fact that you can work with a police force and you can work then with someone trying to disrupt the property market and then you can talk to one of the companies doing the Hyperloop and then you can talk to a rail franchise and say, actually, what, you know, one of the, I mean... I mean, you know, and and you could potentially campaign for things uh, which have significant life-changing effects. I mean, one of the things that obsesses me is I don't think anything like enough change has happened in the patterns of working life to take advantage of what technology could offer. Now, one of the things I'd campaign for in order to get that benefit, I try this thing which I do weirdly, and I try and get my colleagues to do it. They're not really good. I'm not perfect at it, which is just to have rules where three or four days of the week you don't use any technology in the office at all. You go, look, if I'm doing emails or I'm doing anything involving a computer, I might as well do that at home. What am I doing in a building designed for collaboration, which is also open plan, so fucking noisy. Um, (laughs) What am I doing in this building Um, doing something which I can do anywhere. So the time I spend in the building should be 
optimally spent talking to people. The second I sit down and stare at a screen, not only am I not talking to people, but I'm unconsciously, um, you know, giving off a sign of piss off, I'm busy. So nobody will come and talk to me. An email is a curse because what used to be the cigarette break in the good old days when you could light <laughs> up in the office, where you'd basically hang out with people and talk at random, was replaced by people staring at screens, clicking delete, you know, a bit like those weird pigeons in those experiments on kind of variable reinforcement theory, you know. And so one of the interesting experiments is don't do anything involving a computer. You know, if, you, if you've finished with talking to people, get on the train and do your email on the train. But what are you doing, what are you doing coming into your office to do that? Now, it's very difficult to get people to change their behaviour because essentially what we're doing is signalling commitment through presence. I, I, had, I had a question for you which I thought that you were uniquely positioned to answer. And it's to do with... There's, all around the country, there's a massive uh, thing about fitness. Mm. And people put themselves through huge amounts of pain in order to, to, to stay in what they believe is good health or, or vice, whatever. But the question I had is, do you have any philosophies regarding um, the balance between enjoying life versus uh, self-preservation for future? Um, one of the things you can do... Now, maybe... Yeah, there's a very interesting question about that. I'm probably not very good at it being fat, and that is the great irony, which is I do I can have some success actually. The way to, the way to lose weight is, is is just fiendishly difficult if you don't have complete control over the contents of your fridge and you have to eat out a lot and so on. Um, generally, a, a successful weight loss strategy, particularly for males, is something like no carb. It's in other words, you set a few really arbitrary. Um, Sandline rules like don't eat after 7 p.m. or something like that, okay? And you stick to those rules. And the rules have to be kind of absurdly binary because they can't be quantitative. I mean, that, that's the great mistake about calorie counting is that you can self-deceive with numbers. You know, we don't feel that guilty breaking the speed limit, but we do feel bad going through a red traffic light, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, the potential for self-deception, as with alcoholic units, is absolutely massive. You know, people go, oh, I've just, you know, they've had some sort of fucking half-litre bucket of chilli and Merlot at 16%. And they go, oh, it's just a single unit. No, it's not. It's half a bottle, you bastard, you know. And um, so so it's really um, arbitrary, sandline kind of um, uh, um, binary rules uh, generally can work pretty well. Um, the, the the trade-off, I mean, the interesting thing about what you might call the trade-off between past and future, um, your present self and your future self and so on, there's also a question to be asked which no one has asked about retirement as well, which is, I, I mean, why is it that if I took a year out of work, I'd get no tax support, no government support, it would be entirely at my own expense, how have you said that? I'd come back a year later to Ogilvy and I'd still know everybody I'd previously knew and most of what I knew before, OK? Now, how come that's considered kind of an indulgence, whereas retiring, in which case I leave Ogilvy and everything I've known or everybody I've known basically walks out of the door never to return, and that's good, and we should subsidise that and encourage it and make tax provision for it? Does everybody really else think the same way? Okay. <laughs> the second thing is not doing anything is bad for you. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there, there will come a time when I'm probably too ill to do anything at all. At that point, I need either health insurance or perhaps a pension. But 
I always think people do have a kind of set level of aggravation. And the one good thing about some level of work is it forces you to focus that aggravation into something which is at least socially useful or economically productive. Whereas if you retire completely, the exact same energy you used to put into your work goes into, like, having a feud over your neighbour's apple tree, which always strikes me as a really bad use <laughs> of kind of emotional energy. So, that no, I mean, the whole question of, of present versus future trade-off, I mean, the, there is a more or less accepted social norm. And I also talk about this weird norm difference between Americans having two weeks vacation and us having four. Never met anybody in Europe who's so right-wing they think we should have less holiday. By contrast, if you tried to take a bit more holiday in the US, you'd be the lazy guy. And that's an interesting behavioural change challenge, because if you ask Americans, about 68% of them would rather have a bit less money and a lot more holiday, because two weeks extra holiday would require 4% less pay. Okay, Not even sure the US wouldn't be better off economically, because leisure expenditure is generally quite labour-intensive. Um, but... The weird thing there is that you have this norm that everybody must work very, very hard and show their commitment, and then it's okay to stop. You know, it's perfectly okay to walk out of work one day and then spend the rest of the time wearing tartan pants on a Florida <laughs> golf course. But if you actually said, I'd like Fridays off, okay, that makes you some sort of dosser. Yeah. Now, you know, at some point, someone needs to be able to say, and, you know... um, I mean, a similar thing, you're, you're absolutely right about enjoyment of life now and enjoyment of life later. I mean, you might argue that some people are probably, you know, in, in terms of their health behaviour, are probably deferring gratification a bit too much. Yeah, that's that was what I was getting you, at. You're, you're thinking about, yeah. I mean, there's a good passage in a book by Paul Dolan at the LSE where he's got two friends and one of whom, unsurprisingly, the friend with really short time horizons lives in Ibiza and the friend, the friend with really long time horizons works <laughs> as an actuary. Yeah. And he said somewhere between the two of them you've probably got a sensible balance. Yeah. But there is yeah, I mean I wonder um I mean you know I mean I, I'm I get very annoyed by the way when things like flexible working hours are turned into a feminist crusade because I get hold on a second. You're actually disregarding potential allies here. If you try and make this all about a kind of women's thing because I said there's a huge chunk of men who would actually like to rethink I mean, it may be as simple as just the time of day in which you get in. I mean, I get in bloody late, right? Because I kind of, <laughs> you kind of can. Um, um, but one of the things I notice is that commuting by rail, okay, if you catch a train at 9.08 and get in at 9.46 to Blackfriars, right, okay, a journey which at 7 o'clock in the morning is like living hell you're basically like the old gent on the railway children. You know, you sit there in a kind of half-empty carriage reading a newspaper. It's bliss. It's actually really enjoyable. It's also productive because the train's empty enough for you to get your laptop out and so on. And so one of the, one of the secrets for life is, yeah, um, there are certain things where it pays to, do, to, have, to have fairly mainstream tastes. This is a really interesting way of looking at, at, at happiness and other things. So in... You know, in mass-produced goods, it's good to educate yourself to like McDonald's because if you like McDonald's, wherever you are in the world, you'll find something you'll enjoy eating, right? Okay. <laughs> you know, you don't want to become too much of a food or wine twat because if you do that, you know, you'll essentially, you know, I mean, it's a bit like you know training yourself to become very fussy about something. You know, it's really, it's really, really important. You know, I, I, um, you know, I mean, I'm. To I'm, I'm also a bit weird here. You know, I'm totally happy in a travel lodge or a Holiday Inn Express. I, mean, I quite yeah. like I quite like that kind of rational chic. 
you know, you know, just absolutely simple utilitarian stuff. Because particularly if you're only staying for one night, you get very little return from anything else. Uh, overseas in France, generally, the more expensive the hotel, you don't actually get better service. You just get a higher level of pomposity and disdain, you know. And... Um, <laughs> So looking at your expenditure and keeping it diverse, preventing your expenditure becoming trapped in the I'm richer now so everything must become commensurately more expensive. Um, that's one interesting thing where you can, a bit of introspection can help. You know, the natural tendency for your expenditure to grow in lockstep with your earnings and your taste to grow in lockstep with your earnings. That's something to resist. Um, I had a friend who was a really influential friend of my life who was a guy who was a mature student with me at university, and he was an architecture student, a guy called Ray Falk, who's written a book now called Stealing Dylan from Woodstock, which is all about his and his brothers organising the Isle of Wight festivals in 68, 69, and 70. So it was you know, getting Dylan over in, um, uh, what was it, in 69, was it, I think? or six, I can't remember which year, maybe oh, 68. It's going to go over my head. Um, uh, yeah, but before your time, yeah. <laughs> I, I um, was, yeah but um, he was a really interesting guy. In that he had a, a, a sort of vintage Bentley, but he also had a, crap, a totally clapped out Talbot Solara. And we said, well, what the hell have you got that for? And he said, you need that car to remind yourself how good the Bentley is. Well, I think, I think and so the, there are little, there are there are undoubtedly behavioural tricks in happiness that you can play. One of which is if you always stay in fancy hotels, you become an ass. Okay. Yeah. Secondly, cheap hotels are kind of great. You've just got to frame them differently. Thirdly, there are other things where it pays sometimes to cultivate mainstream tastes. Sometimes it pays to be really eccentric. So property, right? Yeah. Um, I think people are far too cautious with property. But the other thing is the. People, the way in which people choose property is they start with place, then they look at price, then they look at number of bedrooms, and they look at architecture and design first, last, right? That means that something which contributes a lot to your happiness, which is the architectural or aesthetic quality of your house, okay, is given ridiculously little, because by the time you've narrowed it down to the five available houses, you're just choosing the least ugly of the five. Okay. Yeah. And so when I moved out, we moved to Canary Wharf, so I, I, we said, okay, we've got to move to Kent or Essex. And I said, okay, we've got two whole counties to bloody look at. Let's not do this boring thing of here are five houses in Shenf you know, in, in, in <laughs> Shelford. Um, I think I like that one. So let's just put architecture first. We ended up on the roof of a Robert Adam grade one listed house. For which we pay, by the way, virtually nothing. I've asked my neighbour, who's an economist, what premium do we pay for this Robert Adam house over an architecturally boring place of the same size, 500 yards away? And he said somewhere between 0 and 1%. You know, So you can actually buy a Robert Adam. You can't buy a Picasso for three grand, but you can buy a Robert Adam for three grand. That fascinates me. Yeah. And it occurred to me, if you look at the, if you look at the order of choice... If we bought art the way we bought property, right, we'd go into an art gallery or an art a dealer and we'd say, I want, a, I, I want a painting and it's got to be five by three, uh, landscape format. It's got to be mostly blue with a bit of green. I'd like it painted <laughs> in the south of France and I'd like to fe it to feature three trees and a cow, right? Now, if that's how we bought art, Picasso's would be really cheap because they'd hardly ever show up in someone's final selection, Right. That's a really interesting thing. It's a really interesting thing that the order in which we choose, um, without us realising it, has a huge, huge effect. And sometimes it's really good just to say, another way of buying property, which would be uh, in the same vein, would be, 
what does everybody else really fucking hate that I don't mind? Or even better, I mean, there's a wonderful <laughs> section in Fever Pitch by Nick Hornby where he goes, you know, I bet I bet houses right next to the Arsenal Stadium are really cheap because who wants to live next to a, a football stadium except me? You see, I think his wife stops him doing it at the end. But there are things like being next to a pub or being next to a railway line, um, which would be a real, which to me would be either neutral or a plus. I'm not bothered by noise at all. I mean, in fact, I regard people who complain about noise as weird. I mean, you know, uh, you know, people who go, "Oh, I can't possibly write." There's someone talking in the next room. Bullshit. You're not a writer. You know. <laughs> um, but um, it always drives me. Being next to a pub, you go, "This is brilliant," because everybody else hates it. That knocks two hundred thousand pounds off the price. But actually, to me, being—I mean, I had a friend who lived next to a pub. It's brilliant. They got the hand pints over the fence, right? <laughs> you know, because what's the best garden in the world? A beer garden, right? Um, but. That kind of thing, I think playing with, looking at markets as kind of ecosystems and going, how do I game the system? What are the biases that everybody else will be suffering from? I mean, I can give a really good behavioural scientist guide to buying property in London, which is all North Londoners are pervily obsessed with the tube network, whereas actually the South London rail network is nicer to travel on, faster and above ground. So people who move, and I, I was talking about this, and someone said, yeah, yeah, my friends moved from Fulham to I think it was either Denmark Hill or Hearn Hill, right? Now, because the place has a hill in its name and it's not on the tube, they thought they were moving into the outer flaming darkness, right? They just thought, I mean, you know, we're basically, I mean, you know, it, this is basically deliverance as far as they were concerned, right? And then on their first day, they discovered that their journey to work was actually half the time it took going from Fulham. But Londoners' idea, particularly North Londoners' idea of what's central, is totally fucked up because the tube map totally fucks up their sense of proportion and scale. So if you're interested to buy, you know, those places like Denmark Hill, Hearn Hill, etc., okay, they're actually, I mean, they're like 10, 12 minutes from Blackfriars or from Victoria in some cases. <laughs> and yet the people in Fulham, who it takes 40 minutes to reach central London, go, oh, I couldn't possibly move out there. And that's entirely kind of mental. Other things on the tube map, by the way, people overuse the central line because it goes in a straight line right to left. They underuse the Victoria line because it's diagonal. So, yeah, I mean, you could argue that a large part of entrepreneurialism is basically asking the question, what's everybody else wrong about? OK, because if I you, the great thing about business is this is where academia is a bit of a problem in business. You don't actually have to be right. You just got to be less wrong than the other guy. And so what's really fascinating about behavioral science is it is a it is to some extent a kind of cataloging of cases where collectively or individually people may be in error. Rory, I have one more question. Of course, you. you know, I'm far away. Yeah. <laughs> I you, love, do edit, you, you do edit you, this. You are out, so you? passionate. Yeah. It's unreal. I, I hope I have half as much energy like throughout the course of my life. Um, it's rapidly deteriorating <laughs> now. I'm basically, uh, I've got another year in me, maybe. Yeah. No, no, uh, mind you, true. I've got I, actually. I've got to stay for another. Let me get this right. I've got to stay for another year so I can actually say I've spent longer at WPP than Martin Sorrell has. Yes. So I do have a target here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I never thought I'd say that. To be absolutely honest. Yeah. Um, 
My last question for you is regarding just learning in general, because you're clearly a very passionate person. You clearly have a wealth of knowledge about well, a number actually, of subjects. I'm not sure. I've, I'm, to be honest, honest, I think what really distinguishes me, I've got no sense of proportion. And this is, by the way, to some colleagues, uh, you know, if you've got, it drives them near insane, which is I'm just as interested in trivial shit. Because I think that life's a bit fractal, that the same patterns, the same patterns which might occur when you're flogging a biscuit to somebody might actually, this is what seems strange. A lot of human, a lot of assumptions about human behaviour are based on the idea that we have a sense of proportion. I'm buying a house, therefore this is a really serious, considered, measured decision where I will look at loads and loads of metrics versus I'm buying a hat, so that's a casual discretionary purchase, right? Actually, if you look at the figures, many, many people buy a house spending less time considering that purchase than a car or a dress, OK, they'll actually buy a house with less consideration and deliberation time. And what you see is, weirdly, the patterns that are kind of weird, like putting the sweets next to the next to the till at shops, actually apply with really momentous parts of human behaviour. So I think one gift the ad industry has to give to wider society is to say, I'll give you an example of this, but... You'll notice quite a few online ads for credit cards which say, apply now and you can be approved in only 12 hours or four hours right now. In economic logical terms, how quickly you're approved for a card should be pretty secondary to APR and all the other stuff in terms of the importance. What the prevalence of those banners shows is that patently something in the human finds the speed of the speed of resolving indecision to be a very important factor. Okay. Now, okay, if you're a credit card company, but that's quite an important discovery in itself. Where it's even more important is no one has ever considered the fact that why men are reluctant to get prostate tests is because there's no promise of the speed at which you'll receive the result. And people really, really hate uncertainty. Okay. Now, if you imagine, okay, there were a button on the wall here, and if you pressed it, it could give you an instant. Now, what the hell is it called? Is it PSA reading? I'm the only 53-year-old. Prostate-specific <laughs> antigen, I think. And basically, if it's above five, unless you've been cycling and having sex, which apparently elevate those things. So as right. a very keen sex cyclist, of course, I yeah. have to, I have to you know, um, as you can imagine. Um, but, but basically, if it's above a certain level, you've got to keep an eye on your prostate, essentially, just in case you've got incipient prostate cancer. Right. Now, the interesting thing is that men... You know, if, you, if you had a button, you could press it, get an instant reading. We'd both press it now, wouldn't we? Right? Of course, yeah. Okay. When it involves a bit of hassle, like going to the doctor and then waiting, we don't go. Now, if you could actually... Maybe what someone needs to do is find a PSA test where they basically say, take this test, we will text you the preliminary result within three hours. Maybe three times as many people will be prepared to do it as when you have to wait five days. There was there were some medical um, tests where I discovered if you passed clear, they didn't even write to you to tell you. Okay? They just said, oh, he's clear, we'll leave it. Right? Now, this poor sod's going, I bet a letter's gone missing in the post and I'm going to die. Right? Okay? You can't do that. You can't leave people in tenterhooks after a medical test. They'll never have another one ever again. 
So that extent to which life's kind of fractal and the same patterns repeat themselves from the trivial to the important is an area where advertising, which is essentially, as a friend of Drayton Bird's once said, you people go very deeply into the surface of things, don't you? Where the essential trivial findings, and, and, and as I said, it's not trivial if you're a credit card company, but seemingly trivial findings about human behaviour can be deployed to the solution of much, much bigger problems strikes me as a really interesting opportunity. So there's not a subject you will not broach? No, no, no. So never, I mean, we have a slogan at Ogilvy Change, which is dare to be trivial, which is don't be ashamed of asking things like, what, you know, what would happen if we made this very seemingly childlike change? Uh, what would happen if we uh, introduced a... Um, a, you know, a telephone call centre script with a slightly silly word, you know, or... Um, I mean, there are lovely little details, like, what's the value? British Airways did this to me, all credit to them. I'd, um, uh, I assume this is both automated and also made non-monotonous, OK? So it so happened that three months apart, I'd flown British Airways, uh, and, um, and I hadn't flown anywhere else in between, and both times I'd flown to Dublin... And when I got on board the second time, they said, welcome back. OK, now, you know, what's the value of that word, that single syllable back? Actually, OK, um, it conveys to me information that I already knew. It's a bit like saying, welcome on board, welcome back, Mr. Sutherland. I, I know my name already. What it actually ostensibly gives you, but what it, it is trivial, what it conveys is momentous. You know, we do actually notice and acknowledge you as a regular passenger of ours. And that's a very interesting thing. You know, the psychology, one of the things I obsess about is the psychology of airline loyalty programs because a very large part of the value of a loyalty program is, if you think about it, you kind of know deep down that if an airline knows you're valuable, they're going to pull out all the stops. Okay. Now, British Airways, no, I guess. I've been in the gold tier or the silver tier, uh, mostly in the silver because, you know, there's a limit, okay? <laughs> uh, but, you know, for the last 10 years, okay? And they've therefore probably extrapolate from that that I have some future value to them. Now, unconsciously, I think we know that, okay? And so the fact that we know that BA knows they fly, I fly with them a lot is actually a huge point of competitive advantage for British Airways. Because when I fly Lufthansa, I basically I'm a tourist, right? Okay. If if there's a you know, if if there's someone slightly more important than me who needs the seat, I'm gonna be bumped off the flight. In with BA, I know, look, you know, one time in twenty or thirty, in any airline, anywhere, something's gonna go a bit wrong. You know, are they gonna pull out a bit of an extra thing for me? Probably yes. So lock in. So a huge amount of that, we look at it as a rewards program, but actually the recognitional component, and by the way, in game theoretic terms, if you think about it, this is a perfectly rational reason to prefer, um, uh, it's a perfectly rational reason to be loyal to certain businesses. You know, economists tend to regard loyalty as irrational, but if there's a level of stochasticity, well, got that in. <laughs> um, you know, if there's a level of randomness in what you can deliver and that... You know, I'm always loyal to my local taxi firm because I know that one day in the next 10 years, I will ask them to go beyond the normal and deliver some unspecified favour or weirdness, you know. Yeah. You know, it's snowing and, the, you know, they haven't, you know, my car's stuck or whatever it may be. 
And so my argument is what I'm doing when I'm being loyal to them is I'm loyal to them because I like using someone who knows I use them a lot. Yeah. Because our terms of exchange have changed with regularity of use. And so, you know, there are loads and loads of things where I think evolutionary psychology uh, instinctively understands these things. We kind of understand it at an unconscious level. But when we talk in economic language, we regard loyalty as being irrational. Makes sense. Rory, it's been so, so fascinating. So you've got any follow-up stuff, don't hesitate. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't be silly. I really appreciate you uh, coming on and just, I mean, it's been more like a spectator sport, but I, I, I enjoy that because, as I say, I listen to your videos with uh, great enjoyment anyway. So I'm sure Adam, who's going to come on in a second, will be able to share some wonderful insights. And um, just for anybody that's listening who would like to reach out to you, I know that you're quite an accessible person, really, to some degree. You, I hope you, so. You, you speak on Twitter and whatnot. So we've got two Twitter feeds, and there's at Rory Sutherland, all one word, and at Ogilvy Change, all one word. Um, uh, they'll both have quite a lot of behavioural science. The Rory Southern one will also have totally irrelevant stuff about, you know, <laughs> which is the best car park in Blue Water. Um, uh, do, you, do you have a favourite or are you not from that part of the country? You know, middle, middle Gallery, I always think, is quite good. Anyway, um, but um, it'll have a load of irrelevant crap. Um, uh, and again, email, I mean, com if anybody's uh, fascinated. Please do follow up with Rory. I mean, he's, uh, yeah, you, you've seen for yourself Treasure Trove. And last thing is, uh, is there anything that you're doing currently that people should check out, like any ask for the audience? I know you... Yes, I can do a fantastic plug, which yep. is 8th of June, nudgestockfestival.co.uk. Ogilvy Change hosts a festival um, called Nudgestock, which is now in its sixth year. Uh, previous speakers have included um, Richard Thaler, before he won his Nobel Prize, uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, this year we've got, um, uh, fantastic, we've got Nicholas Christakis over from Yale uh, talking about bots and the network effects of behavioural change. Uh, we've got some utterly, John Kay from the FT, who in my opinion is one of the greatest and wisest uh, business commentators uh, anywhere in the world. Uh, we've got um, a bunch of utterly fascinating behavioural scientists, including uh, a forensic scientist, uh, Professor Ruth Morgan from UCL, um, uh, we've got a whole bunch of fantastic speakers. It's in Folkestone, because Folkestone. Um, <laughs> but as I said, you know, the logical place to hold it's London. The thing with the logical answer is it tends to be boring and expensive. Okay. So Folkestone it is. Uh, by the seaside, if you go to www.nudgestockfestival.com, Nudge stock. Uh, remember the G because nude stock does exist, but it's a very <laughs> different festival. Um, so, um, nudgestockfestival.co.uk yep. and tickets are still on sale, but of course, scarcity bias. Yeah. Uh, they're going very fast. And I think we've got, I think we're down to two figures. Maybe they're only about 90 to 100 left. And the price is about to go up if you don't act the now. price, but it will, it almost yeah. certainly. It will yeah. go, in fact, it will go up exponentially yeah. uh, towards the date itself. Yes. Yeah. 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 Uh, all right. Well, I will link that up. Up in the show notes on the website as well. So uh, yeah, That's please fantastic. do check. Thank that you out. very much indeed, Rory. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure to meet. Always you. a joy. Thank you very <laughs> much indeed. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today, Rory, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. Here's just five of the actionable insights I heard as you were talking. Number one: what we know can affect our experience. Branding can raise expectations. For example, food packaging can affect its taste. Number two, when you've got a great product, don't oversell it. Simply let the person think it's a perfectly natural thing to have. Number three, 
People who are thinking of buying something will read long copy. It conveys brand character much more than just visuals can. Number four, start your marketing activity from the decision back. If you don't have your coupon right, your headline doesn't matter. And number five, from time to time, try working without your computer. It increases the chance you may have random conversations with your co-workers. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting. They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>